Welcome to GradCast, the podcast and radio show of Western University. Really exciting episode coming up for you today. I'm Elizabeth Muller. I'm your host. My co-host is Nick Poznoff, and we are joined today by Anna Sway. Welcome, Anna. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for being here, Anna. Really excited about your topic. Wondering, just to kick us off, if you can tell us a little bit about who you are as a researcher and a little bit about your topic. Sounds good. Um, So I am a third year PhD candidate in health and rehab sci. Um, I'm in the health promotion stream in title only because I would say that my research fits better under the umbrella of medical sociology. And specifically my research looks at how women uh, story their experiences of tubal ligation or put simply getting their tubes tied. So I'm talking to women who have either gotten the procedure done in the past five years or they're in the process of requesting it um, and sort of seeing what their perspectives are. That's really cool. And how did you get into the field? Like, what did you do your master's in and your bachelor to get into that kind of uh, area of research? So my master's and my uh, bachelor uh, are completely unrelated. So my undergrad was done in neuro and my master's was done in rehabilitation sciences. So I actually looked at secondary health complications following spinal cord injury. In my master's specifically, I looked at bowel function. And, wow. That's and so, so different. Right? And then after uh, two years of that, I decided that I didn't want to do it. And I switched my fields completely. And it just so happened that um, my supervisor was somebody I had TA'd before. And so we had this really great working relationship and she was doing the sort of research that I was interested in using the methodologies that I was interested in and we just connected and it worked out from there. So Anna you mentioned a couple of words and I want to just pedal backwards a little bit. You mentioned story their experiences so for the novice qualitative researchers in the crowd here can you unpack what that might mean? Sure Um, so for my research and For me, as a researcher, uh, I see everyone as a natural storyteller. So even right here, me talking to you about my research, that's a story in of itself. And the way I tell my story doesn't only tell you the facts and the chronological order in which I'm doing these things, but if you listen closely, you can also notice the way I'm storying myself. So I'm narrating myself in a particular way for you folks to see me as this hotshot up and coming researcher, right? And that can tell you some things more about like my personal hangups or how I may view research in academia and a lot of other things like that. And so when I say I'm looking at how women story their experiences of tubal ligation, that's exactly what I mean. How are they not only narrating the actual experience of the procedure, but also what are they telling me about what that procedure meant for them, uh, what their interactions with their physicians were, how this experience fits into the broader narrative that is their life and the broader sort of social stories that we have about sterilization, 
or about young women trying to get sterilized and things like that. Was that clarified? <laughs> Absolutely. It's like right and, on the top. And when you are meeting with these people, is this like in person so that you could see their like physical reactions to things or is this more like over the phone so it's just like verbal cues and their tone of voice? Mm -hmm. So originally the plan was to have these be in-person interviews. Um, unfortunately, due to COVID, we cannot reasonably do that in a safe way. And so now I'll be doing all of my interviews on Zoom. And it's really up to my participants whether they want to have their camera off or whether they want me to see them. So once I get started, that's, that's another thing I want to clarify. I haven't started interviewing people yet. I just got my ethics approval today. Congratulations. <laughs> that's a huge milestone. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so yes, it will be completely up to them whether I see their face and their surroundings or whether we're just two voices on a phone call. And would seeing their face, is that an important aspect of your research or mostly just their story? I think I'm mostly focusing on the story. Um, from an interviewing perspective, it would be very nice to see somebody's face so you're not talking to just like an, a black box on your screen. Um, but it's definitely the story. And that's why they're all recorded and then they're transcribed verbatim um, first. So I know exactly what the participants are saying. So I just wanted to go back to something that you mentioned earlier. You mentioned you'd started off in another field and then sort of through this relationship you had with an advisor and a peak area of interest, you shifted over to this field. What was that experience like, uh, especially in grad school? I know myself, I think I switched majors in undergrad at least twice, but I, I know that that probably gets more complicated as you move along your academic journey. So what was that like? Um, it was interesting, definitely. I am the sort of person who once I get into something, I get into it like 120%. And so switching fields in terms of like the conceptual knowledge base wasn't that difficult. It just, it, it involved a lot of reading and kind of processing all of this information. The hardest thing was switching paradigms, mm -hmm. right? And what I mean by that is, I, I don't know, are you folks qualitative researchers, quantitative, mixed methods? Well, Quantitative mainly. <laughs> Both, right? So I came from a quantitative background. So all research is post-positivist, right? There is one truth and we can get as close as possible to it if we just measure precisely enough. And so when I switched over, I switched over to um, a critical paradigm. And to me, that presence of like a subjective truth and the fact that truth was socially and historically constructed, it was like my brain did a little <laughs> like backflip. And for the first year, I took both, I took two qualitative classes and I started reading everything I could about like philosophy of science and everything else. And by the end of the year, I was like sort of settling down, but that was the hardest part was like, getting around this idea that I could arrive at a single answer and be like, well, we solved sterilization. <laughs> That's incredible. That's so crazy. I don't know if I could do that. Good for you. But 
So what exactly made you want to do this? Like, why, why did you go into this research area? Why this field specifically, right? Um, it, it's kind of interesting, especially given from where I'm coming from. Um, so in qualitative research, very often you use your personal experiences to kind of guide your research. And that's very often your starting point. It's something that is very close to your heart, very close to you personally. And this topic was because I am somebody who doesn't have children nor desires to have children. And for the longest time, I didn't think that was an option. Like growing up, I just thought like, you know, five, six year old Anna was like, well, I guess I'll have kids one day. And I didn't know that like you could just not have them. Um, your parents expect you to have kids, your grandparents, mm-hmm. everyone around you. That age-old question of when are we going to be grandparents? <laughs> right. Um, luckily, I have two dogs, so I just say they're the grandkids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then I just started reading about stories of these women who were like my age or slightly older or even slightly younger who didn't want kids and who were trying to get sterilized and had a really hard time doing it. And I was like, Oh, you can actually go and get this procedure done and then you won't have children. And as I started reading more and more and more, I noticed that systematically these women were having an incredibly tough time. And I thought, okay, but why? Because if you look at the policy, Um, if you look at the legal side of things, you just have to be like old enough. You have to be 18 and you have to have capacity to make medical decisions for yourself. And those are the only two requirements. Um, but time and again, these women who were like competent decision makers were being denied the procedure. And I was like, well, that's kind of weird. And then when I started my own process and trying to get sterilized, um, that I, I got the exact same responses. And so I became even more like passionate and interested in finding out what is going on. Why can't these doctors get their heads around that? Like, we don't want kids. Yeah. I want to just, um, I want to go back to a point you made about capacity and just really brief, briefly for those in the audience or listening who may not know what that is, what does it mean to have capacity for medical decisions? Um, so there's, there's usually like a number of requirements. So first you have to be, we have a legal age for decision-making. Um, I, I believe for a lot of medical procedures, it's actually 16 is the age where you're allowed to just like not disclose your medical history to like your parents, um, and make those decisions independently. But for some procedures, even especially for elective procedures like cosmetic surgery, uh, it's 18. Um, And then second, you need to not have any cognitive impairments. Uh, You have to be acting of your free will. So you're not being coerced into a decision. Nobody's forcing you to, you know, get a certain procedure that you might not want to. And, you know, you can't be under the influence of anything, which is like, standard again for cosmetic procedures and for like non-medical cosmetic procedures so like tattoos piercings and other fun things like that and so sorry go on oh no go ahead finish your thought 
No, I was going to say, so all of these women were like meeting these criteria. They did not have cognitive impairments. In fact, very often these women are um, highly educated and they have high income um, and, you know, they're, they're in the workforce. Um, yeah. And they know exactly what they want, right? Right, exactly. And it's not like a decision because it's such a long process. This is not a decision that is made willy-nilly. This is a decision that many years are spent to arrive at. And if a male wanted the male version of this procedure, how are they usually, like, what do you know about, is it difficult for them as well, or is it a lot easier? Based on my access to literature and sort of um, looking at ease of access to vasectomies for men, um, it is a much easier path. Um, but that being said, I did read these papers as part of commentaries that other critical uh, researchers have compiled. So I haven't seen the statistics myself. So I can't like speak to it in that sense. But the idea is that it's much simpler to acquire a vasectomy. Ah, again. <laughs> Okay. for men once again. <laughs> well, because, because we're comfortable with the idea of a man not wanting a child, right? And so, like, if my husband wanted to go, and he's younger than me, he's 27 and I'm 29, if he wanted to go and get a vasectomy, he would probably have no problem getting it. Versus... Yeah, versus for somebody like me, it's like, oh, but you're going to regret it in the future. That's so frustrating. But why do you think that is? Do you think it's because it is irreversible and, like, that is kind of the main reason? Because they allow you to take birth control. You can take and put in an IOD if you want. But it's like for this major procedure, that's when like, they kind of cut the lot. Like, that's the <laughs> line for them, right? I mean... If you look at actual reversal rates for tubal sterilization, tubal ligation, there's many words for it, um, and vasectomies, the success rates are actually quite similar. Um, and so if, if you're looking at how easy it is to reverse something, there shouldn't really be a difference in between vasectomies and tubal sterilization. There are alternatives, but I think that's that's kind of not even the point the the issue here is that women are deemed um, untrustworthy in a way and infantile right because how can you know what you want even though for someone like me like i'm almost 30 it's like we've waited for the biological clock to start ticking and it hasn't right and so like i i read women's stories where they would have multiple abortions and very traumatic abortions because their birth control would fail or the IUD would fail for whatever reasons and they were still denied to be sterilized and this one woman had four abortions and she finally went to her doctor and went what are you doing like I very clearly do not want to procreate at least biologically right it's like, I don't want a biological child. What are you doing here? You're traumatizing me over and over and over again. And then she finally got sterilized. 
I think it's really similar to like when people, I don't know, for me, like it feels like it's similar to like if you keep getting like bronchitis and your tonsils keep getting inflamed and like to the point where you need to get your tonsils removed, like a doctor wouldn't think twice about it. Like if it's going to be less harmful for the patient to have these tonsils removed, they will remove them. But like in this case, like you're harming your body more by having to get all these abortions and all these procedures. So why can't they just do what you want them to do and that is really frustrating. <laughs> but again, this is this is your physician coming in and insisting that they know better. They know what's better for you than you yourself. Right? And historically, that's how women have been treated in the medical field. There's a long-standing history of just like the poor treatment but straight up violence against women in a medical sense. That's really interesting that uh, you bring that up. And, and even in today's world where we claim that we have equality and autonomy, we're not seeing that in, in this specific instance. And what do you think needs to be done to shift that culture of thinking? I think this culture of thinking isn't limited to the medical field. And that's kind of, um, it's, it's how my research fits better under the medical sociology umbrella, right? Because we're looking at how certain medical ways of thinking are socially constructed. And there is a social discourse of pronatalism, right? Which is the way I like to put it is babies are great and babies at all costs, right? And so for a physician to like, for a physician who was trained in North America and for a physician who has just like grown up talking to other people, they're, they are subject to exactly the same discourse as everybody else, right? If you talk to anybody else on the street and you tell them, oh, I don't want to have kids, they're like, why do you hate children, right? It's like, well, I don't hate children. I just don't think they're for me, um, and so, of course, you have clinicians who fall into the same way of thinking. And they're not bad people. They're just, they're legitimately trying to protect their patients from regretting their decisions in the future. But by doing so, they're infringing on their patient's autonomy and their right to exercise said autonomy. I guess that's, that doesn't really answer what you asked because you asked. What needs, no worries. To, what needs to change, right? And what needs to change is like, we need to start treating women as people and we need to let women make their decisions about their bodies. And it's 2020 and I can't believe I'm saying that. Yeah, I guess it's not just the one answer, right? It's kind of just a multi-step process that we just gotta, we just gotta start somewhere mm -hmm. until we get there. Yeah, we need to accept that women are different and that women know their bodies and they should be able to decide what to do with them. We also need to change our ideas of motherhood, right? It's not just having a biological kid. Motherhood is having an adoptive child. It's fostering a child. It's all of these different um, versions of how it can look like. And we shouldn't limit it to, well, this child is genetically related to you, you know? And that's an interesting uh, point too. 
so much of our, our definitions of nuclear family have started to change and, and are continuing to change as different combinations of families become more commonplace. And Yusuf, I think I heard you wanted to jump in there. So go ahead. Yes. Uh, hi, folks. Hi, Anna. Uh, right. Hi. I'm just a producer and Yusuf. Uh, and I had a question as well. So I was just wondering why it is the case, it seems to me, that when it comes to making body modifications and very serious ones that could have some serious issues as well, um, doctors are less reluctant to maybe stop those procedures. And But when it comes to um, sterilization, somehow they have a much more gendered approach. Just wondering why you think that is the case. I think because we're still in this old fashioned way, equating the idea of womanhood to the idea of motherhood. And so we have a lot of trouble separating these ideas of like, how can a woman be complete if she's not a mother, right? We're okay with men not being fathers. If you are, that's great. But if you're not, you do your thing. But a woman, right? right you have this natural ability to be a mother and to create life. Why are you not using it? Thank you. Thank you very much. And apologies for the noise. But anyway, <laughs> no worries. I'll, I'll go back. That's crazy. I still can't. That's I can't wrap my head around this. Like there's so many things that you are allowed to do, but something like so important, they won't let you. I'd be mean, like, I'm I'm the proud owner of four tattoos and those are permanent. And maybe in some point in the future, I will regret them. I don't regret them now. I think they're wonderful. But like nobody put any hurdles in my way to acquire them. How difficult is it to reverse this procedure? Because you did mention like it's possible and you said the success rate's the same as for men, but I wasn't, I'm not aware of how that works. Mm -hmm. So the success rate is incredibly low for both. That's off the bat. Uh, depending on the type of sterilization you receive. So there is, um, you can clamp the tubes, you can cauterize them, or you can remove them completely. It's very rare that the tubes are removed completely unless uh, a full hysterectomy is being conducted. But if they are clamped, there is a way to reattach them surgically. Um, but again, the success rate is very low. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then, so is the main reason someone would want to do a procedure like this is because um, most other contraceptives like birth control and IUDs, they're just not as 100% as something like this? Like, is that the main reason someone would choose to do this procedure? Well, people do, people request to be sterilized for various reasons. And um, some of the reasons are because temporary and hormonal birth control has failed them in the past. Um, but a lot of people are simply not satisfied with being on hormonal birth control because there is its own array of side effects that is associated with it. Um, getting your tubes tied has fairly low complication rates associated with it and very few side effects. And because it's not hormonal, you're not experiencing all the kind of side effects that are associated with it being hormonal in nature, right? You're not going to have increase in weight. You're not going to have mood swings. You're not going to have, you know, acne or any of that stuff. 
I definitely understand that. I've had such a hard time with hormones and birth control. I've tried literally everything and everything sucks for my body. <laughs> like, oh, it's difficult being a female. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Elizabeth, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting conversation about bodily autonomy and, you know, who gets to make decisions over their own body and how those decisions are played out and how they're influenced in, in our broader society. And I think um, it's interesting too, because you look at people that want to have their, their tubes tied, um, but historically as somebody that's very familiar with the disability, critical disability studies literature, uh, women with disabilities were, were often forced into sterilization. So we see two extremes of the same problem here, people not being permitted and then people being forced into it who may want to have children. Yeah, and that to me sounds like there's a particular rhetoric of who we want to have children. Yep. Right? And that starts to sound like the very bad E word, which is eugenics. Yes. <laughs> right? And that's not okay, especially if it's practiced under the guise of, you know, do no harm and we don't want you to regret it, or we don't want you to have a child that you won't be able to care for. Do you, do you know if there's any, um, like, Maybe different, depending on the culture, like, is there some cultures that this would be easier to have a physician agree to do the, the procedure for? Or is there, I'm not sure, is there any cultural differences when it comes to this? There are racial differences. There are quite uh, drastic racial disparities um, in sterilization rates. So indigenous women, um, Latinx women, uh, uh, black women are sterilized at much higher rates than white women and this aligns sort of with the sort of history of tubal sterilization and the fact that it was used as part of eugenic practices specifically with women of color and also women with physical disabilities intellectual disabilities um, women with mental illnesses and so forth and so although now it's not explicitly being used as part of a eugenics movement, you still have this disparity and that needs further investigation. Yeah. So we have just a few more minutes left, but I don't want to end on a bad note. So why don't you tell us uh, what's <laughs> coming up in the, the near future for your research? Well, in the near future, I'll actually start recruiting participants and I'm hoping I will get to chat with some very interesting people who will hopefully share their stories with me. Um, and yeah, and then I will write it all up, all up and hopefully have a doctorate. Yeah, is it hard to find participants and, um, currently? I haven't started recruiting yet, but I'm anticipating that most of my participants will come through uh, online recruitment, not physical. And Anna, you know, it's uh, been a really great episode and we're kind of rolling towards the end, but before we roll up and roll out your social media, if, if, if we wanted to get a hold of you, how, what would be the best way to get a hold of you if folks have more questions or want to chat about your research? Uh, you can find me on ResearchGate. <laughs> Amazing, congrats. <laughs> uh, yeah, just 
honest way and my profile will pop up and i'm also on facebook perfect same name yeah sick well folks you've been listening to gradcast the podcast and radio show of western university i want to thank my co-host nick bosnod Honest Way for being here today as our guest. And of course, we can't forget our producer, Yusuf Hassan. If you like what you've heard, you can check out our YouTube channel, Gradcast Radio. You can also check us out on the radio at 94.9 FM. Also, download our podcast at Podbeam or wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe you want to get in touch with us and maybe be on the show yourself. You can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a good night.